all worship comes from the Bible, God tells us how to worship in the Bible. So shouldn't we worship the way God tells us? From Wrestling with God Productions, this is Life Lessons from Jesus and the Church He Founded. podcast where we unpack stories from the Bible and explore 2,000 years of rituals and traditions in the church Jesus founded to recognize the powerful effect they have on deepening our relationship with God. I'm your host, Irish McMahon. Our guide for the journey is a guy who loves studying the history of worship and God's intentions for how and why we worship. He's Irish Catholic priest, Father Len McMillan. In this episode, Father Len dives into the history of worship to reveal that all worship and its purpose come from the Bible. You'll hear Father Len frequently refer to something called the Eucharist. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Eucharist, it's the meal at the center of how Jesus tells us to worship, including the divine food he first gave us for our souls at the Last Supper with his disciples. Father Len will have much more about the Eucharist and how it helps give us eternal life in upcoming episodes. For now, Father Len begins his exploration of the history of worship with a story to introduce us to the primary purposes of worship. Here's Father Len. There's this Jewish story and the story is about worship, liturgy. So if I use the word liturgy, what liturgy means is worship or how to worship. So there's this Jewish story that this one village lived by a well. And the well would, was its only source of water. And an enemy comes in and poisons the well. But the problem is the poison won't kill you. It'll just make you go crazy. So the people, of course, avoid the water as long as possible, but then the thirst is just overwhelming. So they go to the rabbi and they tell the rabbi, Rabbi, what do we do? And the rabbi says, well, eventually we will have to drink the water. But what we're going to do is put a mark on our foreheads so that when we look at each other, we'll be reminded that we don't see each other or the world as it was intended. And it's the mark is to remind them that, ah, we've all lost our mind. And the point being is that liturgy is that mark on our forehead where we're trying to rediscover what our original minds were supposed to look like. That sounds strange, but that's why we go to liturgy, not to get something, but to become aware of something. So I really want to start off with why do we do what we do? And you'll ask a question and say, but that's not the purpose of worship. Like, why can't we do X, Y, Z? Because that's not the purpose of worship. Wouldn't it be great if we did this? Yeah, that might be entertaining, but that's not the purpose of worship. So why do we do what we do? And we do it to remember. And so we go to church to remember many things. But one thing we go to remember the past. Now, the word remember in Hebrew there's two words for remember. One in the sense of, remember in 1492 when Storma crossed the ocean blue? 
that's a historical remembering. Then there's remembering uh, Zechron, which actually means make the past live now. Isn't that a great word? It's not about like passing the facts. It's about some truth that's going to continue on to this moment. And so the Eucharist, we go to church to remember, to make the past come alive. So the Eucharist is this subversive memory. Well, we're the most dangerous group if we only remember who we're meant to be and remember what we're supposed to become. So if you go in the book of Genesis, the reason why God says to keep the Sabbath, to gather together as a community and keep the Sabbath, is to remember what it means to be a human being. Outside the Garden of Eden, we lost the, what it means to be a human being. Liturgy, worship, is supposed to recall, oh, we do this so that we can become true human beings. In Exodus, the reason for worshiping is different. In Exodus, God says to keep the Sabbath so that we won't turn into Egyptians. Remember, they were slaves and they were set free, but they have to worship every Sabbath in order to keep that freedom alive. Otherwise, you'll slip into thinking that you're Egyptians or slip into thinking that you're slaves. And so the origins of Jewish worship is actually subversive. That uh, the origins of Jewish worship is a rejection of Egyptian culture. So it's killing the Egyptian god so that you're truly set free. You're killing what it means to be a slave. So worship is not about keeping the status quo, but really about remembering to become something. And I mention that because you get all these crazy thoughts with liturgy. Like when I was at the pastor of St. Mark's, I thought this was interesting. There is this marketing company, I'm sure it's still alive today, and this was 20 years ago, that you could pay, let's say you want to start your own church, you'd pay the marketing company $15,000, and they would do this whole marketing campaign of what people want to hear. So what they want to hear, how they want to worship, and they guaranteed a certain amount of income and attendance that you market it to their message. But that's not really worship of God. That's really worship of yourself or your culture. It's not worship that demands conversion. The reason why that works, and it really does, the reason why that marketing works is that it only confirms what people want. And so it's not worship that subverts your way of life or challenges you. It's a worship that says, oh, no, we're the ones who are right. There's no mark on the forehead that says, wow, we lost our minds. It's a worship of the status quo. It's a worship of you. Worship is supposed to wake us up to be countercultural. On the rise of Nazism and well, Mussolini, fascism is taking over. And you think worship would wake them up. And in part, many Jewish children were saved, hundreds of thousands, by Catholics. But the bishops never really came out of a statement. They came out of a statement that there's too much cussing at the beaches in Italy, but totally skipped the most important time of their life. Or during the civil rights movements, the bishops in the United States, they came down with a very strong statement not to wear short sleeves at mass. I don't think worship really woke them up to what needed to live at the time period, but 
the Eucharist is supposed to move us out of the status quo, not confirm it. It's supposed to bring us back to the Garden of Eden. And so liturgy, in a way, is a judge and a criterion on how we're supposed to order our lives. So we don't look to the Eucharist to confirm just how we're living now. We look to the Eucharist for conversion. The Eucharist is supposed to challenge the way we live and offer us an alternative. So in one sense, it is a political statement. It wants to subvert the ways of the world. It doesn't want to strengthen the ways of the world. It wants to blow it out of the water. So we go to church to remember this past. And the past is the Garden of Eden. But we also go to remember the, the present. And I know that sounds kind of strange, but we go to see the present as it is. So God orders a change of seasons in the Bible. Now, that should strike you as strange. By change of seasons, you know how we have like Advent and Lent. He doesn't order that. But in the Old Testament, he has chapters on how the worship stays the same throughout the year, just like the Eucharist. It kind of stays the same throughout the year. But God orders different seasons throughout the year. And you have to say, why does God demand? He demands sacrifice. But at different times, he changes the season around it, the same way we do. And in this book, there's this book called Future Shock, and it details the rapid impact changes in society. And he says, I like this, he says, today more than ever, we need a framework for our lives, a pattern of holidays and rotating seasons. Without it, we're like somebody in a speedboat over a trackless sea with nothing to indicate where we are. You're moving fast, but you have no way of noticing, well, what are the changes? So God in the Old Testament is not only concerned about ritual worship, but worship that wakes you up to the very present moment. So God commands that a whole calendar of liturgical events and seasons take place just to mark the changes in people's lives just so that we're waked up. That demands kind of regular contact with God. So liturgical seasons, they allow you to see the present. So we want to see the past and make it live. We want to be woken up to the present of what's really going on. And liturgy is about, we go to Mass to see the future. What do you mean, see the future? The whole Mass is really, if you read the book of Revelation, a liturgy of heaven. Mass gets us ready for heaven. It's about remembering for eternity. We'll be celebrating. So let's get how they think in heaven. We want to start thinking that way now. And so, this sounds strange. Why do Catholics use symbols to pray with? Because they're great. And God gave us the symbols to wake us up. And so just another little story. There's a story of this guy who finds out that there's this T on the top of the mountain. And if you climb the top of the mountain, it, there's a monk there with this T. And if you drink the tea, you'll gain wisdom. So the guy takes the journey, climbs the mountain, almost loses his life. He climbs the mountain, gets to the top of the mountain, goes into this little hut with a monk. And the monk says, oh, he says to the monk, give me some tea that I may drink in wisdom. And the monk says, did you bring a cup? Um, <laughs> No, the guy said, well, no, I scaled the mountain. He says, oh, you have to bring a cup. Because if I pour the tea in your hands, 
it'll burn it. If I pour the tea on the ground, it'll be wasted. But you need a cup to drink in wisdom. And the story is told because to really drink in wisdom, you have to have some container. And that's what the symbol is. So we have a lot of symbols, what this means, what this means. So we use symbols as a way of praying to drink in wisdom. Symbols in the Bible give wisdom. So God commands that we use symbols to drink in wisdom. And when I read some church sign, and no offense, I'm shocked, and some of the signs say biblical worship, which kind of cracks me up because really what they mean is the pastor just giving a lecture on one tiny passage of the Bible that he's thrilled with and says, this is the Bible. But it's not worshiping the way God tells us to worship. It doesn't mean that we worship the Bible as God tells us to, because God commands a lot of symbols to be used in worship. So we don't worship the symbol. That's often the criticism. We use symbols to worship God. And there's a huge difference. And I'll take this as an example. Do you remember when the people are traveling across the desert in the Bible? And they start to complain about everything. And they said, well, they basically say, well, God, we've done this ourselves." And God says, oh, really? (laughs) Well, let me withdraw my protective presence. And when God was with them, there was like this bubble of safety. And then when God withdraws, suddenly all these serpents come into the camp. Wow, the desert is filled with snakes. (laughs) And suddenly they realize without God's presence, all these poisons and snakes come. And so God says, oh, for you to be cured of the poison, put a bronze serpent on a pole. And when you look up and see the serpent on on the wood, you'll be cured. The idea is that if you're able to see your own sins, then you got the antidote to the poison. And Jesus is going to use that as uh, he's lifted up on the wood as well. You have to be able to see what we have done. So here's the point. The serpent on the wood is not a graven image of God, but it's a symbol of God's judgment and cure. All they had to do is look at their own sins and then they'd be free. And Jesus connects that with himself, right? We look at the cross and what we did. Going back to the symbols, how this relates is one Israelite king decides to pull the bronze serpent out of storage and has the people start to worship it, but it was kept as a relic, as a reminder, not as a substitute for God. So there's this whole passage that, no, no, that was a relic to remind us of the presence of God, not a substitute for it. So God forbids that. So right there, there's a difference between worshiping God using a symbol and worshiping a symbol as God. People criticize us Catholics, but the Bible is clear. What is a symbol and what is the divine presence of God? Uh, There is a difference, but God himself commands that we use symbols. So I'd say the Eucharist is not a symbol in that sense. The Eucharist is the divine presence. But around the Eucharist, we use a lot of symbols. Because God commanded, we use symbols to drink in wisdom. So I, I have three degrees in, in three masters. My favorite one is actually liturgy. I love studying liturgy. I don't really care about rubrics, if you know me. 
but I love like the history of liturgy. And when I was at Santa Clara uh, is when they, I first took this class on the symbols of the mass. And like I already had two masters before that, but I loved how it woke me up to, wow, all these symbols are in the Bible. And the way we pray using symbols they're the symbols God gave us, but it's also a way of studying the Bible. Liturgy is putting the Bible into action. Because God, if you study, God is constantly using the same symbols to make a point. Now, he uses a symbol all through the Bible, but each time it's kind of making a different point. So symbols are like words, if that makes sense. Like, and this is one of my favorite symbols. Do you know what the third most common symbol in the Bible is? Believe it or not, it's tree. You can take a Bible, throw it on the floor, and I guarantee you, on any page of the Bible, it will mention a tree. There's a tree at the beginning, there's a tree at the end. So that, and I'll explain what that is. That, uh, you, to read the Bible, you have to know, oh, that tree, it means something. God is making a statement. So the point being is that all worship comes from the Bible. Now, Here's the odd part. For Protestants, Eucharist, the Eucharist is this isolated non-event. For them, they might study the Bible, but when it comes to any symbols, they don't appreciate them. When it comes to Eucharist, that's a non-event they just don't talk about. And so to know the Bible and the symbols of the Bible, if you don't know them, it's a detriment to the gospel and the Eucharist. The gospel finds its expression in the Eucharist. And without knowing the Bible, you're impoverished by not knowing the symbols of the Eucharist. So, like, I love studying this stuff because it's all, all these symbols have biblical origins. The most important thing is to remind people that the Eucharist didn't rise from the Bible. Bible rose from the Eucharist. Which came first, the New Testament or the Eucharist? Eucharist. It was started before any of the Bible was written. In fact, the Eucharist is the New Testament. A lot of people think, if I say the word New Testament, what do you think? You think of a book, right? Right? No, you're wrong. Just stop it. You're wrong. <laughs> the only time the word New Testament comes up in the Bible is actually at the Last Supper when Jesus says, this is the New Testament. He's not talking about the book. He's talking about the Eucharist. It's only as apostles start to die off that it, that testament gets written down. So my only point being is that if you look, the Eucharist actually precedes the Bible. The Eucharist is the New Testament. So if you read the New Testament, you're really reading about the Bible. And many early church sources describe how early Christians worshipped. And if you look at the early sources, really the way we celebrate Mass hasn't changed much in 2,000 years. The Middle Ages added some things. But you can go to the Didache or this guy named Justin Martin that describes baptism and Eucharist, and it's pretty much the same way it does now. So another point I want to make is that there's a difference between being a spectator and biblical worship. So when we worship, it's all of us celebrating the Mass together. It's not an entertainment for you. So 
like how many times, I don't know, like, like I've done this, where you've walked into a movie theater and before you walk into the row, you accidentally genuflect? <laughs> Any, no, nobody else has done that? Oh. But my point being is that the Eucharist is not a movie theater. In fact, like the problem is you have people who, when they go to Mass, they go to be entertained. Mass is not supposed to be entertaining. And even like, I think this is funny, a couple of Christmases ago, this family I was close to, they brought this little niece to Christmas Mass. And afterwards I said, well, how did you like Mass? And she says, well, it's a lot more work than my other church. It <laughs> says, in my other church, I just have to sit there and watch. And I thought, yeah, that is true. So I just think it's kind of in interesting that if my job is to tap dance as fast as I can, then really you're kind of learning a learned helplessness that I'm responsible to provide everything. I'm not really here to be entertaining and do this tap dance. So just one more story. When I was at St. Mark's, we won this award for one of the top 100 places to worship in the United States. And they actually said that we're one of their favorites. So for the, like, the top 10 or something, they had this conference. And in this conference, they had what makes worship work, be Catholic or Protestant. And this one Protestant minister said something really interesting to us, where he said, you know, you Catholics have it so easy. You have been doing the same thing for 2,000 years. He said, you know, for my congregation, yeah, we got the award, but he said, Every Sunday, it has to be more of a show, more fireworks, more tap dancing for Christmas, more camels. He says, I'm exhausted. Like, I always have to put on a bigger, bigger, bigger show. You Catholics have been doing the same thing for 2,000 years. And the guy said, I can't wait to retire. I, I, he said, I'm just earning enough for retirement. Like, worship does not revive him. It exhausts him because he's an entertainment center. And I thought that was really telling. And even in last year at our RCA, one of our RCA classes, this one woman, the reason why she wants to become Catholic is she was studying the Bible, and like the Eucharist is such a big thing. But she goes to this kind of big evangelical church on Christmas. And the previous Christmas she goes, and of course it's the fireworks show and the camels and when Jesus is born, they do this nativity recreation. When Jesus is born, people from the ceilings, ribbon dancers, come down and start swirling. And just her face, she says, I looked at that really for the birth of Christ, ribbon dancers. And like I personally thought it was a great idea. And I asked two women on my staff, because we have a couple. I said, for Christmas, I want you in leotards and to come down swirling. But they were, they were bad employees. They just refused to do it. But that's not drinking in wisdom, the meaning of the event. That's entertainment. Liturgy is supposed to sub subvert the way the world works. Liturgy is supposed to subvert the way we think. So when I say subvert, it means turned up. And a lot turned completely over. And some parts of the Catholic liturgy are just like the Jewish liturgy, are designed to remind you, oh no, we're offering an alternative way of thinking about the world. So like if the ancient Christians, you'd have to know a little about, about Rome. So by, when I say subversive liturgy, Romans would greet themselves with Pax Romano. 
Pax Romano, peace of Rome. May the peace of Rome be with you. Do you know how Rome gained peace? With incredible bloodshed. You, you offer any resistance and Rome comes in and kicks you in the teeth. So when they say Pax Romano, they mean wow, the peace of Rome by killing everybody. So Christians, as a counter to that, would offer Pax Christi, the peace of Christ. We're not going to conquer the world by killing everybody who disagrees with us. We're going to conquer the world by sacrificing ourselves and love for other people like Christ did. So like, it's offering something else. So the Eucharist is not about entertainment. It's about conversion. Eucharist, we'd say, is to display God's justice. So we act out God's justice. Now, in Latin, it's ordo. Ordo means order. So we'd say, well, we act out God's order. You can either act out the order, the way the world thinks, or the way God thinks. And why it's subversive is that we'd say, well, the way the world works is actually a type of disorder. It structures itself on power or greed or whatever. We'd say liturgy is to teach us a new ordo, a new way of living that is ingrained with the universe. So Christ tells his disciples, we're not going to be the top dogs. That's what the Romans want us to be. We're going to be, we're going to go for the bottom. Like that's a complete opposite way of thinking. And it amazes that after 2,000 years of he hearing these parables and commands and sharing this meal, oftentimes people want to seek the values of the world. Ours is supposed to be the complete opposite. Worship is not supposed to confirm it. It's supposed to offer a whole new way of worship. But the problem is that, especially in the United States, people confuse worship and entertainment. Worship is supposed to give you a vision of the kingdom of God of the order of heaven. Like, they had this a couple years ago in Boise, where the Louis Palawa, uh, he's an um, evangelical, he's really big on all the commercials, and he was coming in, and he was going to have some conversion event, and he said, for junior high kids, we're having a special worship on Sunday just for junior high kids, and bring your skateboard. And, like, but that's not really worship. That's a rock concert where they all skated. That's entertainment. Or they did this thing I thought was funny, where you would bring a stuffed animal that symbolizes yourself, and you would offer that up to Christ. Well, that's really kind of entertainment. You know what I mean? Like, And besides, my stuffed animal would probably be a skunk or something. So, one more example. We do this in Catholicism all the time because I have a friend who he's in Merced County and he's this priest and he wanted to put up a communion rail in his church. I have no problem with communion rails, but he knows I have a degree in liturgy. So he calls me and says, I want you to give me a good reason for putting up a communion rail. So I explained to him the whole history of the communion rail, that communion rails had nothing to do with communion. If you look at the rubrics of the Mass, the word communion rail doesn't show up. The communion rail started just to keep out animals from the sanctuary, which sounds strange to us, but remember, you know, thousands of years ago, if you celebrate Mass in like South America, animals, birds come in and out all the time. The communion rails 
was to prevent dogs from coming into the sanctuary and disturbing the mass. It wasn't about communion. So when I told him that, he says, well, I don't like that. I want, and I said, well, then put up a communion rail. But don't say that God commanded. Nowhere does God command it. Like, that's what I mean by entertainment. He does it because he likes the flash of it. I don't really have a problem with it, but for God's sakes, don't say it's because the Catholic Church demands it. You just like the flash. The same way, when I was a little kid, of course, it was the 70s, my nana, the, my Irish grandmother, we go to mass, and I'm not really sure what the priest was thinking, but it was the 70s. And my grandmother was not the most open-minded person, as you could imagine. And anyhow, the priest says, and I still think this is beautiful, the priest says, in lieu of a homily, Sister Mary Jo is going to do an interpretive dance on the nature of God. And she comes out of the sacristy in this black leotard. And, oh my God, my grandmother turned to stone. And my, and my mother was so embarrassed. And she was like, oh my God, Nana's not going to like this. <laughs> the problem is when you start talking about masks, people confuse entertainment the flash with meaning. So it doesn't matter whether it's the nun in the leotard or my friend with his, he has a very conservative bent. What they're really going for is flash, not, well, where does it say that in the Bible? So I want you to start thinking, well, where in the Bible does it say that? Because that's a huge difference. The other really big thing about liturgy is liturgies are commitment ceremonies. And the odd part, like there's this guy named Dan Gilbert, who this major positive psychologist in the history. Do you know if you want to become more happy, you know what you have to do in life? Make and carry out commitments. And at the time period where he was doing the study, he was just living with his girlfriend. And they've been living together. Who needs a marriage license? Does the study. People that make commitments turn out happier. So he'd been living with his girlfriend for 10 years. And after he has all this research that it's overwhelming. One of the many ingredients of a happy life is being able to make commitments. So he comes home to his girlfriend and says, oh, we are going to get married. <laughs> he says, it's going to be big. Everybody's going to know about it. And like he said, he really did. It increased his happiness. Commitments lead to happiness. So we have this very ancient way of celebrating. The Sabbath ceremony of the Eucharist is us making a commitment. It's not entertainment. God tells us how to worship in the Bible. So shouldn't we worship the way God tells us? So all worship comes from the Bible and worship is not about being entertained. It's about remembering to become something and making commitments. Remembering Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross in love for us Remembering Christ's resurrection to help us see the future and get us ready for heaven. It's about committing to become Christ-like in all we do and constantly renewing, strengthening, and deepening that commitment. Pretty challenging stuff, but very rewarding, don't you think? And speaking of worship, we'll have much more on the Eucharist in coming episodes. Thanks for listening to this episode of Life Lessons from Jesus and the Church He Founded. We welcome your comments and questions. 
It's really easy to get those to us. You can just shoot me an email. My address is irish at www.gproductions.org. That's irish at www.gproductions.org. Or you can text me or leave me a voicemail at 208-391-3738. That's 208-391-3738. This podcast is created and distributed by Wrestling With God Productions. Our theme music is composed and performed by Jake Einick and Kevin Barnett. And the lifeblood of Wrestling With God Productions comes from generous donors who support our mission. It takes a lot of money and time to design, record, edit, distribute, and promote the podcasts we create. So if you've benefited from one of our podcasts, please consider making a donation at givesendgo.com slash WWG Productions. That's givesendgo.com slash WWG Productions. Thanks for your support. And thanks again for listening. See you next time.